Welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is episode 12, Thinking Voice, The Vocal Flourish, and Latinx Musicals, Gender-Affirming Vocal Expression. My name is Masi Asari. There are three main parts to this podcast, a brief reading from a text in Voice Studies, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our times, and an exercise for voice practice. On this episode, following a brief reflection of my own, I begin with an excerpt from the book The Great Woman Singer, Gender and Voice in Puerto Rican Music by Licia Fielmata. Then I'll be in conversation with Princeton Theater Studies professor Brian Herrera. And to close, Diane Robinson of the Chicago Voice Center will lead a wonderful vocal exercise. Since my last episode, there are two other podcasts for which I was a guest speaker earlier this year that I invite you to check out. One is the Visceral Voice podcast with Christine Schneider and Kimberly Doreen Burns for their Voice of the Dramatist episode in January. And I spoke about the creative life with rock and alternative country musician Rhett Miller of the Old 97s on his podcast Wheels Off with Rhett Miller, episode 74, in April. Look for links to these programs and Voicing Across Distance episode transcripts on my website, M-A-S-I-A-S-A-R-E dot com slash podcast. I'll give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music featured on this episode. First, a clip of singer-actress L. Morgan Lee, the first openly transgender actor to originate a role in a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece of theater, singing the song A Sympathetic Ear from Michael R. Jackson's musical A Strange Loop. Happy Pride Month! Then a clip of the song Henesis performed by Lucecita Benitez from the album and Vivo Desde Carnegie Hall. Finally, a clip of Karen Olivo and Shireen Pimentel singing Un Hombre Así from West Side Story with the Spanish lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda in a wonderful musical arrangement by Jaime Lozano that streamed in the digital concert Viva Broadway Hear Our Voices from the Broadway League in October 2020. Thank you, Jaime, for sharing this clip with us. All right, here we go. Stay the course, seize the day, ride your horse into the fray. Live your life and tell your story in exactly the same way. Truthfully and without fear. Despite those who wish you would disappear. Find joy inside your life while you're still here. That's your challenge from a sympathetic ear. I feel a bit wistful that it's been five months since my last episode and far longer since my guests and I began planning for the conversations heard here, which were recorded in November 2020 and have been waiting silent, patient audio files on my computer for me to return. I remember how in the first month of making this podcast, I produced a new episode every week, immersing myself in the vast set of mundane tasks it required. Hours editing sound files, preparing for interviews, emailing guests, bouncing tracks, and posting online. It was a relief to have something to throw myself into to distract from the overwhelming uncertainty that unfolded in the spring of 2020. More recently, teaching commitments and a series of virtual artist residencies have demanded my attention, and two, writing and composing deadlines have stalked me. 
Returning to the podcast now, 14 months since I began it, carries a strange feeling. Now we are in a spring becoming summer where my country is beginning to slowly, nervously emerge from the pandemic. 50% of adults in the U.S. are now fully vaccinated, a statistic that includes me for which I am truly grateful. Yet only 5% of the global population is vaccinated as new variants of the virus continue to appear. The World Health Organization reports 1.55 billion vaccine doses administered worldwide. 75% of these vaccine doses have been given in just 10 of the world's 195 countries, 10 very wealthy countries, including the U.S. In low-income countries, including many African countries, less than 1 or 2% of the national population has received even a single dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. This spring, India has been in free fall, although cases are beginning to decline, with the caveat that, as virtually everywhere in the world, the numbers of cases and deaths are certain to be underreported. People are dying when deaths are preventable if there were only access to hospital beds, oxygen, vaccines. What is happening in India or Argentina or Japan, places where cases are spiking, feels removed from my reality now that the national guidance from the CDC is that vaccinated people in the U.S. no longer need to wear masks in most public spaces. I have now taken a few flights. The airports were packed. We are still wearing masks in airports and on flights, and it seems unclear when or whether that should ever end. I have met up with friends and family I had not seen in over a year. We laughed and cried and hugged. And then, too, at least 69 Palestinian children have been killed in the past weeks, uh, with dozens more injured and arrested in the West Bank. The violence is horrific. Hate crimes against Asian Americans have risen to ever more shocking levels here at home. Friends and I worry especially about the safety of our Asian mothers, fathers, grandparents, elders who should be revered. And the headlines blare about how U.S. democracy is under severe threat, with new laws being pushed that suppress voters' rights, restrict access to reproductive care, protect insurrectionists. And then, too, the orchid plant in my window has bloomed again. My students are singing beautifully and courageously, Zoom classes notwithstanding. It is the last week of spring quarter at my university, and summer is finally within reach. This episode of the podcast has a lot of theater and musical theater energy. Theaters here in the U.S., not least on Broadway, the industry bellwether, are finally scheduled to reopen. Questions remain as to how much our theaters will have changed for the better, with the yet unrealized promise of all those more racially equitable practices that everyone was issuing pledges about a year ago this time. I expect to be in rehearsals for a new musical by September, which seems both normal and unbelievable. It is the first week of June 2021, and I am so glad I'm able to return to this podcast to advance the work of thinking, making, and hearing vocal sound now, in this historical moment, across the various kinds of distance that continue to keep so many of us apart. I've chosen a reading from a book by Licia Filmata that feels especially relevant to the conversations on this podcast. 
Part of what Brian Herrera and I speak about in this episode is what kinds of voices are expected of Latinx performers and characters in U.S. musical theater, including the ways that skilled performers vocalize in excess of predetermined roles and fraught expectations of authenticity. We think together about that unavoidable index of Latinx and specifically Puerto Rican identity, the 1957, although perpetually revived, Broadway musical West Side Story. And we also touch on the other best-known musical celebrating, and unlike West Side Story, also authored by Latinx artists, In the Heights, which opened on Broadway in 2008. Its authors, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Chiara Alegria Jurez, both have Puerto Rican backgrounds. In the Heights is presently generating lots of buzz since the new film adaptation will be released in the U.S. on June 11, 2021. Professor Herrera and I also listened to performances by Latinx Broadway artists in a virtual benefit concert, Viva Broadway, Hear Our Voices, that was live-streamed in fall 2020. In particular, two singers featured, Shireen Pimentel and Karen Olivo. I should note that our conversation was recorded months before Karen Olivo's impactful announcement this spring that they will not return to their starring role in the Broadway show Moulin Rouge when it reopens, in direct critique of producer Scott Rudin and appalling recent reports about his record of abusive behavior in the workplace. With voice practitioner Diane Robinson, I speak on this episode about vocalizing beyond other kinds of limited expectations. In her work, Diane invites trans and non-binary clients to engage voice in ways that can exceed the limits of overdetermined, cisgendered assumptions. So in the book, The Great Woman Singer, Gender and Voice in Puerto Rican Music, Licia Fielmata listens to four major artists in Puerto Rican popular music, rendering critical biographies of Mirta Silva, Ruth Fernandez, Ernestia Reyes, La Calandria, and Lucecita Benitez. There is a little bit of humor and critique in how Fiolmata uses the phrase great woman singer in the book's title. Part of what she is foregrounding is the dismissive effect that comes from referring to certain vocalists in pop music histories as the greatest of the women singers. Fiolmata is interested in how being a woman always makes being recognized as a great singer extra complicated, something that has to be qualified as if women with pretensions to genius are necessarily suspect. Especially meaningful for her is the artist Lucecita Benitez, whose powerful performance of the song Genesis in 1969 won honors at the first ever World Festival of Latin Song, Festival Mundial de la Canción Latina, despite the fact that Lucecita, often described by journalists as boyish or androgynous, did not sing sweetly about heterosexual love. Instead, in the midst of the Cold War era, she sang queerly into the raw feeling of a world where the flame of love is the answer to potential apocalypse. Filmata cites Benitez, who said in 1973, I am not pro-independence, I am not a nationalist, I am nothing. I believe that Puerto Rico has to be a free country, period. That's the way it is. Good or bad, we have to be free. The only thing you can't allow is to have freedom taken from you, because then you become nothing, nothing. You're nothing, you're nobody, you're a good for nothing. Through Lucecita Benitez and the other singers whom she studies, Filmata theorizes the thinking voice that arises when a female pop singer allows her sound and career to manifest this kind of nothingness that is more than an absence, more than an emptiness, 
a refusal to be predetermined by the forces of male-authored celebrity culture or nationalism, which, please remember, in the case of Puerto Rico, has operated in the context of U.S. military rule and imperatives around colorful, folkloric performances to pacify and lure tourists. The thinking voice, with its slippery invocation of nothingness, resounds as a refusal of the idea that to be a woman in music is to be one who does not think, but only entertains according to what is expected of her. I'll read the excerpt in just a minute, but first a quick note on a few fancy words it includes that I hope will not daunt you. Insufflation, I had to look this one up, which means the act of breathing into something, kind of like to infuse energy or breath into it. Then hermeneutic, a term that has come up on this podcast before, which is a theoretical framework, a means of interpretation, the kind of tool or method that is used to understand or theorize something. And the word qua, which means as being, in the capacity of. So this qua that means if we understand this as being that. So here is the excerpt, and the my and I here is, of course, not me, Masi, but in the voice of the author, Licia Filmata. My interest in the female pop music star is about querying instances where singularity erupts despite heterosexism and misogyny through the vehicle of voice. My goal is to disrupt the normative business of scholarly studies on women artists. Overall, I aim to really listen to women's voices in the sense of paying attention to their conceptual dimension, away from notions of natural or intuitive performance. I detail how four paradigmatically iconic artists elaborated their concept, troubling the gaze on their figures as simple manifestations of artistic serendipity or, alternatively, as creations made possible by male insufflations of spirit. The book narrates their histories and analyzes their work outside the poverty of critical tools and the near-universal gesture of dismissing women artists as merely women singers. Yet, it's not as easy as merely rejecting or ironizing the epithet, however much we may wish it gone from our consciousness. The ideology we seek to disrupt influences our apprehension of these voices inescapably. If we do not critically isolate this problem of the collectivity, this imposition of acritical listening, we won't be able to dispel it. The grouping, then, of these four artists qua women is a function of the hermeneutic, a move to unsettle matters, not to reaffirm them. Speaking of the voice as if it were not an actuality covered by gender, Riffing on Hortense Spillers, who spoke of a subject covered by race, is simply to contribute to the further buttressing of the status quo we see verified in books on Latin popular music, which to this day only name Celia Cruz and La Lupe, usually in passing, in their surveys. Or in university courses on Latin American popular music that can run for years without studying any women artists. I'm so delighted to welcome our guest scholar for this episode, Brian Herrera. Brian Eugenio Herrera is a writer, teacher, and scholar, and associate professor of theater at Princeton University. 
His work examines the history of gender, sexuality, and race within and through U.S. popular performance. He is the author of Latin Numbers, Playing Latino in 20th Century U.S. Popular Performance from Michigan 2015, and the Latina O Theater Commons 2013 National Convening, a narrative report from HowlRound in 2015. He is the inaugural resident scholar for the Soul Project, an initiative dedicated to producing the work of Latinx playwrights in New York City and beyond, and co-editor of the Performances and American Cultures series at NYU Press. Dr. Herrera is a long-standing contributor to the Fornes Institute, a project committed to preserving and amplifying the legacy of Maria Irene Fornes, and is part of the core facilitation team with Art Equity, an organization dedicated to creating and sustaining a culture of equity and inclusion through the arts. He is presently at work on two books, Next, A Brief History of Casting, a historical study of the material practices of casting in U.S. popular performance, and starring Miss Virginia Calhoun, a narrative portrait of a deservedly obscure early 20th century actress, writer, producer. Thank you so much for joining me, Brian. It's a thrill to be here. Thank you. So as a leading scholar of theater, gender, sexuality, and race, and of course, musical theater, your scholarship um, does really important analysis of the fascination with Latinx identities in the U.S. cultural imaginary and the preoccupations that come with that around what kinds of performances are presumed to be authentic. So um, I love that you ensure that the field attends to how Latinx identities have been rehearsed and staged in popular performance, and also how U.S. audiences have been rehearsed to expect and consume particular kinds of racial performativity. So I want to, as we jump in here, ask if you could say a bit about how you approach this really fraught idea of authenticity in your work. Um, what has an engagement with the so-called authentic opened up or, I don't know, provoked for your own research and thinking? Well, thanks for that. And authenticity is one of those um, words that comes up even when you don't want it to. <laughs> and I think that for me, authenticity has a sort of a, a primo, a cousin, uh, a sort of a relational word, which is stereotype. Mm -hmm. Both of them uh, operate in a logic that is about a yes, no as assumption. Hmm. It either is or isn't authentic. It either is or isn't a stereotype. And so it invites a kind of critical engagement that is pretty sort of, um, for lack of a better word, short-sighted. It's not listening for anything beyond that first impression or that first assessment. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I've always, since I'm very much, all of my work has always been interested in the presence and absence of Latinx characters, narratives, actors, stories, et cetera, in the mainstream not so much coming out of the grassroots, but in mainstream film, television, and theater, I, that those questions of authenticity and stereotype are always right there because I'm working in a space of mainstream film, television, and theater, which is rarely, um, which is hardly grassroots, hardly authentic, hardly of the people. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. commodity that's been produced for all kinds of reasons, separate from being representationally accurate. Um, one of the lines I often say is, oh, for me, all roads return to West Side Story. <laughs> Um, for me, since I really cut my teeth trying to grapple with the paradoxes embedded within the history and reality of West Side Story in mm -hmm. American cultural life, 
I felt like there was always a guiding tension about these ideas of stereotype. And especially, I think, more productively here in, for our conversation today about authenticity. For me, West Side Story is a text that I love and loathe in equal measure because there are aspects of artistry and achievement and experimentation that 60, 70 years later remain thrilling, mm -hmm. even as it is layered and if each of its iterations is layered with reactivation of all kinds of pernicious habits of representation around Latinx folks, around youth criminality, around all kinds of assumptions about what progress means in America. All those things are just sort of part of the, the, the air that the piece breathes. And so it's mm -hmm. always on the one hand, one thing that can be utterly compelling and another thing that's just utterly annoying at the same time. And so for me, I think part of what I try to hold is the fact that that's why um, in some ways performances work. We love going to performance to see people do things that are marvelous. Yeah. West Side Story provides such a platform for marvelous expression of artistry, vocally and choreographically, and, and sort of, I think, design-wise and directorially-wise, there's a lot of room for artists to show off mm -hmm. in West Side Story. And yet, in so doing, then we see these habits of brown face, bad accents, sort of uh, tired, tired storylines, all these things that, are, that exist in a kind of dynamic tension. Mm -hmm. Part of what I find exciting and interesting is to see the ways in which those, um, especially what we might call problematic faves, um, sort of activate these different, uh, the tension. If you're looking at Latinx presence in musicals, you're almost always dealing with that tension between um, the musical form's interest in a spectacular presentation of skill, mm -hmm. then in tension with a repertoire of stories about Latinx lives that just haven't always, like, there's just not been as much practice. So the burden of representation lands on those stories in a whole different way. Yeah. Folks go to these shows and really ask them to solve a lot of pre-existing problems. Again, why I like West Side Story is it caused a lot of those problems. So the fact <laughs> that it keeps coming back is always an interesting way to revisit what are we thinking about this sort of, because it always telescopes us back to 1957, even if we're mm -hmm. watching it in 2020. Mm -hmm. And even as the production as the most recent Broadway revival sought to do is really try to sort of remove 1950 from it, right? it's still in its bones. And because what is held onto is the reason it survives is because the music is stunning. The space for choreographic storytelling is thrilling. Mm -hmm. And there's something exciting to watch a stage full of young, exuberantly talented people uh, go deep into their feelings in text, music, and movement. Mm -hmm. I was teaching a course this semester called Latinx Musicals on Stage and Screen. And part of the reason I was interested in that is because I feel like in musical theater studies, we often have a lot of arguments about which is the real recording or who is the best so-and-so. Right. There's a lot of sort of implicit, it's, it comes out of a fan culture, but it also comes out of a kind of a connoisseurship approach. Yeah of like really saying like, this was the signature production or that's like, if you really want to hear this song, listen to this interpreter of it. Yeah. And which I can, I hear is authenticity debates as well. Oh, cool. Uh -huh. So I think that there is a kind of um, way that for me thinking about uh, the burdens, the challenges of telling Latinx stories and mainstream platforms, and then the challenges of watching like, is that a good version of this song? Or is does this feel right? Does this feel real? Does this feel like, do I trust it? Do I feel like it's coming from a place of hostility? All of these things are the mechanisms that we use both when we're making aesthetic judgments mm -hmm. as well as when we're making perhaps more sociopolitically informed critiques. Yeah. There's so much there to respond to. You said, you know, when we're when we're experiencing these works and we ask, does it feel right? And do I trust it? And I love those two questions because I feel like the question of does it feel right 
gets asked a lot of musical theater writers, of writers of any kind, does it work? Does it feel right? Yeah. <laughs> that question of does it work? But I have never been asked, or I, I have never had that dramaturgical question framed as, do I trust this? Do I feel well, like, like I, I can be in a relationship of trust to this work? And I just thought that was such a really wonderful thing that you, that you brought in. Well, and I do think that that is something that we see with, um, uh, with uh, when musical theater makers are creating for communities that have been underrepresented. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always very moved by Lisa Crone when she talks about the way, about her investment in creating the character of Allison in Fun Home mm-hmm. as a way that approached the character of a butch presenting lesbian in a space of love, admiration, and desire, mm-hmm. as opposed to a spot of mockery or cruelty or humor, which is the only other places that like notoriously in the producers, how a butch lesbian shows up as a punchline. Yeah. And I think that this is something that often folks who love forms are very habituated to sort of encountering versions of themselves and to realize that I love people who look like me or who have my experience. I love black people. I'm not sure that the people who made this show love black people, even though they put a lot of black people on the stage. There's a fascinating genealogy. Again, all roads return to West Side Story. There's a fascinating genealogy of the way that the character of Anita functions as a character who's remarkably underscripted and and what we might call overperformed, where the actor themselves sort of manifests more than the character allows. And Uh that ends up often becoming a kind of a wave for um, Latinx audiences to hold on to the wave that Cheetah Rivera or uh, Rita Moreno or Karen Olivo is bringing to the performance because yeah. it's not really in the script. Can I ask you to say a little bit more about that? This idea of overperforming or, or kind of finding space to perform that wasn't written. Can you say more about how you not measure, but how you how you identify that? Like, how do you how do you feel that there's more being done than what is than what the script might allow? when you talk to folks who are uh, like women performers, actors of color, disabled actors, you hear how what they do is how much work they do to reach to a humanity of the character, mm-hmm. even if that humanity is not on the page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so there's a kind of way that's an instinctive sort of, I don't I want my family to like what I do, or I want my mom and dad to come and not be offended by my performance. Like it might be something as simple as that, but there's sometimes is often other ethical obligations, like a sense of I'm not in a position to demand a rewrite, but I am in a position to make sure that if they see this character, they're gonna see a human being. Yeah. As I've studied Latino actors in throughout the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, the ones I find myself interested in are the ones who I think um, color outside the lines of the role and uh-huh. not so much in a way that would be disruptive, but in some ways add the full texture of their, uh, their, their artistry to a role that may actually not be scripted to include it. I always call actors performance makers, just as I would call a designer, a director, or a librettist or a playwright, sure. a performance mm-hmm. maker. And there's a lovely piece by Deborah Paredes called Queer for Uncle Sam about the character of Anita, in which she sort of reads Anita beyond the script and to sort of models the ways in which um, the character of Anita sort of has activated for audiences ways to imagine outside of the limits of the of the script. And I think that's part of where um, in the character of Anita to return to where we began is this, I think a lot of audiences, especially for the film, have found in Rita Moreno's performance um, something that feels more real than even admirable performances by Natalie Wood or George Shakiris. And so I think there's a, there's a way in which we can, um, when there's a sense that, oh, she's really bringing it, 
like when we get that idea that phrase yeah. he's really bringing it it's like it's not so much that they're just sort of showing off yeah that they're bringing a truth that they're bringing a humanity or that they're finding the complexity in what in another mouth might sound like a actually sort of mildly cruel joke or a racist yeah. joke but but in this mouth we hear we hear the 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 complexity of of a joke being turned on itself perhaps yeah. or, or a joke being heightened this how stupid is this joke you yeah. know and that is through inflection and through uh through the sophistication of the person speaking those words or singing those words fantastic and you've brought us right here to the voice uh in, in different ways than we have been discussing already <laughs> maybe more literally um and i love what you've just said about um thinking about the ways that a singer can, I don't know, bring bring forth the song, bring forth more than what the song might have been um, in, in, another, in another expression. So let's talk a little bit about um, Latinx identity or perceptions of Latinxness and voice. You know, there are all different kinds of ways that singers of different backgrounds um, encounter expectations that we will manifest our race in our vocal expression. And I talked with Dantella Galella on an episode of this podcast about um, certain kinds of accents that are expected um, in, in performances of vocal yellow face that continue to appear in musicals. And of course, she's writing on that, which is very exciting. So certainly whether it's in the form of an accent or in another way, um, there are certain pressures, I think, on, on uh, musical theater performers and, and performers in many different arenas who are doing these maneuvers, as you're describing, to kind of uh, find ways to excavate new nuances to the roles that they may be handed. But how I'm, I want to ask for your thoughts on how performers, um, in your experience, navigate um, expectations of what a Latinx voice sounds like in musicals, or, or maybe just your general thoughts around what audiences are perceiving or expecting or, or performance makers of various um, stripes are expecting of um, actors when they step on stage to perform a Latinx character. That's a really interesting question because I think like most things with regard to the performance of Latinxness in the 20th and 21st centuries, there is a sense that um, nobody's sure what they're asking for. Like it's uh, mm. it's kind of a it's a, a kind of a there's no there there because it is by nature a polyglot a conglomeration of a variety of different cultural, ethnic, national, and religious traditions. Yep in the context of the United States to then only then become under this umbrella that we would call Latino, Hispanic, or Latinx. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting tension here in terms of vocality, because I think in terms of Latinx, the sound of Latinidad on stages in particular is typically routed in rhythm more than vocality, right? Mm. There's an expectation of, of a kind of uh, this will hear a rhythm first and then it'll be followed by some kind of percussive confirmation right mm -hmm. and that's like we he we can even hear that between west side story and in the heights that the opening sound of in the heights is a is a sort of percussive sound of these claves sort of sticks bouncing off of each other yeah. that sort of announces the beginning of in the heights that's also the very first sound scored in uh the song america and west side story so there's uh -huh. a kind of way where there's a kind of a rhythmic often kind of announcement or dialogue or something like that yeah. but that also is as fraught in the u.s and anglo uh, let's say the anglo-american context by overdetermined by sort of the commodification of latin rhythms latin numbers and yeah. latin dance styles often through the lens of an english or an anglo -Saxon 
Eurocentric approach to sort of popularizing tango, bolero, samba, cha-cha, all those things which yeah. you can recognize from Dancing with the Stars, uh, which, ha which are called Latin styles, but as styles. Right. And so I think what we, what we often see and hear are questions of rhythm. And then of course, Latino audiences are judging who's dancing well and who's got the rhythm and which, you know, yeah. and, and try to clock who's actually Puerto Rican by how the, how well they're doing the salsa. Right. There's this kind of right. authenticity met connoisseurship going on there. Yeah. I do think what um, the vocality ends up arriving in interesting ways through two mechanisms, I would suggest, which is, um, uh, exclamations, you know, mm -hmm. things like, ay, 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 you know, just mm -hmm. to be, or, or in some cases also like if they're invoking like a, a kind of a, a certain kind of crooner or even a ranchero, a kind of big voice belting mariachi sound. Like sometimes it is like a, an ay, like a, a call out, a mariachi style call or a kind of, um, and so there's often those yeah. kind of vocal flourishes. Um, uh, and then, um, I do think there's also these trill, like these trilling edges, these sort of like it's gilding. Like maybe that's what I'm trying ah. to say. Is that, is that there's a there's a gilding that confirms its Latinxness, right? There's wow. a gilding that comes in terms of often at the ends of phrases, holding notes, adding a little bit of a, a trill or a flourish, and then um, then. Uh, and then also sometimes vocally connecting to rhythm. If we think of the sound of Carmen Miranda, most of the sounds that your listeners' ears will imagine, if they can conjure a sound of Carmen Miranda, it's a staccato quick clip of a highly dictive, um, like quick diction of uh -huh. really fast speaking, often, often with accent and sometimes including jokes or kind of little coy punny turns. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way of maneuvering the lyrics with this kind of extra flair. And there's a, in some ways, I think that that is the vocality of Latinidad is it comes with a, something a little bit extra. And even if we listen to um, the way uh, Anita sings in, in America, in all the iterations of America, she often extends. There's often mm -hmm. a way that her joke extends or the way that she will turn on the person she's in singing in dialogue with, mm -hmm. whether it's a man or a woman, depending which version we're looking at. There's a way it's which the guild, and that's where irony can come in, that's where humor can come in, that's where commentary can come in. But it's that gilding of either demonstrating the artistry of the voice or a kind of a additional flourish of cultural specific, of, of some kind of cultural treat um, and so, so I think that those are the ways that we most clearly hear it, because um, even when we see musicals like Celia, the musical about La Lupe, these bio musicals, mm -hmm. which are produced primarily for Latino audiences in not on Broadway, but in sort of low, uh, uh, organizations like Puerto Rican Traveling Theater or... I don't know about the La Lupe musical. What, what is that? Been, there's been, and they're mostly, they're sort of borrowing from the popsicle or that's Robin Bernstein's version of a jukebox musical is the popsicle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh so they're mostly doing a biographical portrait using the catalog and these are not um and many of them are 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 produced by uh, scrappy culturally specific independent theaters in yeah. new york city and, and if you search online there's often full productions that are accessible uh-huh but even that it goes even those they really go to um uh sort of capturing the specificity of what celia or what la lupe uh would do in terms of their vocal flourishing so part of what is also there is some of the most iconic uh uh performers like la lupe or celia or we could even i would argue even charo here mm -hmm. are 
right in that space of demonstrating, like having extraordinary skill, but also having this extraordinary kind of way of embellishment, this mm -hmm. mode of vocal embellishment that was very specific to the particular performer, which I would say put Carmen Miranda in the same category. So there's a way of, of clocking uh, what mainstream American entertainment recognizes in Latino performance as sort of seeing this idea of the embellishment, of mm. seeing this idea of, of, of hearing a whole um, rat-a-tat-tat of words that you might not fully understand, but there's something exciting mm. about the delivery. And so, and I see that that plays out in a variety of different ways in a, in, as sort of a tool, whether we're looking at a musical like On Your Feet, the Emilio and Gloria Estefan story, or mm -hmm. a musical like In the Heights, where we see some of those techniques being, being adapted uh, to serve characters. Um, they're legible to both Latino and non-Latino audiences as part of this special pleasure mm -hmm. of watching a performer who really knows how to do what they know how to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, this is so great. You know, it brings to mind for me um, Alexandra Vasquez's book, Listening in Detail, where she's writing Alex's image or main method for how to listen and she's writing about Cuban um, and Cuban-American performance uh, music specifically um, but her method is this idea of, of the detail the detailing the small which comes kind of from a, a language of visual culture you know the uh, architectural detail or the the um, the small kind of curly cue or whatever it is the small the small thing that's added in um, and so I'm really excited to listen more and, and think about what you've just said there. And then the other thing that I'm really sitting with is this idea of the clave and how, um, you know, it's so interesting when I teach vocal performance and I teach a vocal performance class for musical theater performers here at Northwestern, um, one of the biggest things, I teach a pop styles class where we go through a bunch of different popular vocal styles because we can't just sing legit and belt nowadays in musical theater. We have to have some yeah. facility with other styles, right? So, um, but one of the biggest things that I work on with students is the relationship to the beat because it isn't something that is called for in some of the, um, where, where if, you're, if you're doing a Roger and Hammerstein song, right, where it's really about the expansiveness of melody, there may not be this imperative to really pay attention to how your voice is repelling off of the beat, you, you know, know, in the, the way, way that for, for a singer who can really swing or really hit a groove, um, there's, there's a, the singer has to have a relationship to the beat. And so this idea of being in vocal relationship to the clave is so cool and like exciting and like practically exciting to think about. And I just want to also clock, um, that, uh, in the recent streaming concert, um, what was it called? The Viva Broadway concert um, yeah. that was streaming in early October. There was an intro by Lin-Manuel Miranda at the very top who said something like, you know, the sound of the clave echoes throughout Broadway history. Not, you know, not just the shows that we think of, um, importantly, West Side Story and as you've mentioned in the Heights, but also like back to Cole Porter and the Begins and sort of the sound. And so that was just an interesting, maybe that's been said and I'm just catching up, <laughs> but the extent to which we can really, you know, it's kind of like when the jazz scholars started to think about, well, what is the Latin tinge that supposedly, you know, it's it, the, there's this rhythm that is um, permeates, right? The jazz, the jazz repertoire that permeates the Broadway repertoire, even if people haven't necessarily been listening to it. And those voices, those singers who know how to listen for it can uh, do particular things in relation to it. 
in my book, Latin Numbers, I talk a little bit about the popularity and indeed the ubiquity of a so-called Latin number in yep. people during the, what we would call often the golden age. And that is often borrowing upon sort of rhythmic frames yeah. that are fortified by visual styling or in some case, dramaturgical features of getting a little bit crazy. Um, you know, because uh-huh. often I say it's like, um, it's usually a color, chaos, and uh, there's, I have a third C in there, that, but I'm forgetting it right now. But it's this, I, this idea of a huge, like just suddenly a lot's going on, a lot of color, a lot yeah. of chaos, and um, that act, that the Latin number can activate that incredible uh, like constellation of movement and sound, and that's embedded so much so that like um, so much so that it's it's part of a kind of sense of what musicals or musical numbers are supposed to look like where you don't necessarily have brightly colored arm ruffles, but mm-hmm. it would be like, there's the opening number of the film La La Land that I consider a Latin number because of the way it works. Mm. It's an abstracted Latin number, but there's one, because when I first saw the film, I was going like, it was starting and it was like, hey, wait a minute, this feels like a Latin number. Why am I just making that up because I see Latin numbers everywhere? And of course, there's this one moment, there's this one moment, the only moment that explains the music that actually happens is about halfway through the number, there's a moment when a, when a truck opens up its back door and then is a whole Latin percussive section. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so it's this, that was the moment when I was saying, see, it is happening. It is, yeah. It's only abstracted until that one moment when it came into focus and then it re-abstracted. But what do we see there? We see color, we see chaos, we see this incredible exuberance of spirit. Uh-huh. And that is often what, and it's anchored by rhythm and it's anchored by the eruptive force of song. Because I do think that that is one of the things that if we think about the way the Latin number typically stands, is it tends to to defy, dramaturgically at least, the the conventional notion that it's when the emotion or the feeling or the sense of narrative urgency exceeds the capacity. So it must burst into song, right? right? Usually there's this idea that that's how we understand how to make the monologue out of the song. All those conventions that we have in musical theater. Many of the Latin numbers, and I would say even Carnival and in the Heights, exist in a moment when, when it's not a sensible feeling, when it's actually insensible feeling that must be expressed. And it's an eruption of anxiety or eruption of stress or an eruption of something that can leave folks then uh, in a cathartic way. They've had it out. They've let it go. And um, and so that is baked into the musical going back um, and going way back. One of the things that was most thrilling about the Viva Broadway concert for me was the performance of A Boy Like That Again, All Roads Returned for West Side Story. Yeah. Uh, It was the duet between Karen Olivo and Shireen Pimentel, who were um, Anita in 2009 and um, Maria in 2020, respectively. One of the things that really struck me was there was something that, for lack of a better word, I'm not going to call it authentic, but there was something (laughs) on a different hearing of the rhythmic relationship between the two pieces Ah. that just felt like these were women who knew each other and were not coming at the world from different orbits. Because most of the time when that number is staged, it's two people on the opposite side of the room and the sense of music brings them together. Uh They are together from the outset and they just haven't found their blend. And there's a sense of, and I think it was because often when we see that number staged, it's like two people in very different points of disagreement. Yeah. 
there was something just deeply felt and deeply musical about the way their staging worked. And, um, and I think it is because they were having to listen to each other in a different way because they weren't on stage. They weren't blocked in certain ways. There was something about the Zoom concertness of it all that might have activated a different way of hearing that song for me, which has long been one of my favorite duets of, of all time, yeah. often preferring the Anita track of Boy Like That versus I Have a Love. Right. But, um, uh, but there is something uh, that was just different for me. And yeah. it ultimately amplified what I thought was really striking about Shireen Pimentel in the role, who she brought an earthy adolescent, um, you know, just sort of a kind of her body on stage. She was not your light, sort of effervescent, blow yep. too hard. She'll, blow, she'll blow away a Maria, which is often the way the character is staged. Yep. She was a teenage girl in the streets of New York City. And it was just like, she was right there. And, and then when she sang, she sang with this legit trained soaring sound. Yeah. And it, uh, the production uh, in 2020 just really listened, loved the sounds of the lovers singing together. And so Isaac Cole Powell and Shereen Pimentel, just, they were soaring sound. It was just beautiful mm -hmm. to listen to them. And there was just something really exciting to see another glimpse of that with Karen Olivo and Shereen Pimentel bouncing off of each other in that staging, because uh, even though it was only a benefit, but that's, I think, what benefits often will let us do is when they're taken out of dramaturgical context, when they're taken out of all the apparatus of the stage and the lights and everything like this, yeah. you can see the performers. This again, loops back to our notion of how the performers can be authors. We can see the performers lean into more of what they would do with the song outside of the narrative. And so when you have a Broadway performer who knows how to do the role and hit all their marks on their track, yeah. but then they get a chance just a little bit to breathe more, we can mm -hmm. actually see all that they bring. And in this case, that was the highlight of Viva Broadway for me. I thought that was an amazing performance. I was excited to see all of the new writers featured and um, Michelle Rodriguez, who um, is from here in Chicago and has been it's doing so really exciting. amazing that project stuff. Was I was on it. it's so, so excited for her with that project. Um, ben Velez, who's been working um, on the John Leguizamo musical that was out um, at Berkeley Rep. So, and then, but like what, yeah. And Jaime Lozano. Yeah. I saw, I saw Kiss My Ass Ticket, La Jolla. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So, and then I was super excited to hear it. Now I'm just randomly, we're almost done here. I was super excited to hear the score of the Like Water for Chocolate musical, which sounded like it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah, Santa Cecilia is, um, is it's, I, I think, matching Santa Cecilia with Chiara Alegria Furious. Yeah. It's going to be a really interesting thing because they're both very separately and in very different cultural contexts. Yep. Puerto Rican East Coast versus California South, California Mexican American and Honduran and Guatemalan community. Uh, I'm really interested to see what they come up with because I do think that that uh, collision of that way of how to bring different Latino perspectives together on a culturally specific story mm -hmm. is still a space that Latino artists are working, are really in a space to lead of how do you work in solidarity and allyship if the story is not exactly yours. Yeah, right. And still, and still, so then we're, of course, doing the dance with authenticity in a different way. But also just, I sort of really struggle with that word authentic. And I really was grateful for your riff at the top because I don't always know how to answer that. Um, but I do sometimes think about it just in terms of artistic authenticity. Like, are we rendering something? And you can't really separate that from cultural authenticity. So it's a little bit artificial, but I do. I think that this is one of the questions sometimes is how much we are, are we expecting uh, the cultural authenticity to sort of solve the problems of the form. Yeah. Or well, how much are we expecting the artistic achievement to overtake whatever problems there are culturally? Yeah. And I think it's really a goal to find a 
they can work in dynamic tension because they do. Yeah. They don't always work in dynamic balance. Right, right, right. And again, um, I, I want to come back to West Side Story, but uh, again, of course, but it's the thing where, you know, like everybody wants to write a musical now that is about something politicized. <laughs> everybody everybody wants to write a musical that has that has a purpose, which is great. You know, like all the young writers that I come across that, you know, different things that I'm asked to, to join or, or students that I'm teaching and that's great, but like if you if the whole point of your musical is waving a flag, not to, not to say anything, I'm, this is not a, a reference to Lamez, but if the whole point of your musical is to just like make your political point, and there's no kind of structural integrity or aesthetic logic to it, then you you kind of can't proceed. You kind of can't proceed, right? So to sort of say like as long as we get the authenticity right, then who cares what else happens? Like that feels like a slap in the face to what artistry can really be. The one thing I would tag on to that is I think that one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the musical theater is, even the ones that are heartbreaking and are hard, there's a soaring pleasure that exists. And it's and how are we honest about the fact that when we're telling a difficult story, we're asking audiences to engage in a form that promises pleasure. And that is a really interesting tension. And if we're honest about that tension, it can really activate into transformative, emotional, cathartic experiences. Mm -hmm. If we're not honest about it, then they can start working at counter, counter purposes in ways that don't always feel, um, that will leave audiences and critics and others sort of confounded. And it yeah. will, and so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky game. Yeah. I did just want to say in reference to the Shireen Pimentel, Carolyn Olivo, I loved their duet, their performance. And I was also, it's interesting that you talk about sort of uh, Shireen Pimentel's presence on the stage. I did not see that Suicide Story production for a number of reasons, but uh, I was really excited to get to hear her sing. And I thought that part of what you're talking about, like her vocally, she did not have that kind of wispy, piercing soprano that we sometimes get with Maria. So it's interesting that you were speaking about her embodiment and the number as well, because there was something about the full-bodiedness of that soprano that that was able to balance out where Anita comes from, you know, where, where Anita is scored, the two parts together, right? So that, so that when you have an, um, an, a Maria, the soprano, who is not just going to like float away into the clouds, then there's, there's a little bit of a, a different kind of a match between um, Anita, who's already kind of feet on the ground in a different way. Um, then I, it just, it just had a different, um, heft for me than that, um, relate vocal relationships sometimes have. And also they was, it was, the acting was very, was very strong. <laughs> so. yeah, no, and I think that that's in this production for all of the ways I could talk about this production. Um, what I will say is it was a revelation for me in the mm. way that they really chose to prioritize Tony and Maria. Like it really focused on the young love story. Tony was a revelation in Isaac Cole Powell's hands and uh, mm. Maria was a revelation to me. And I've seen so many iterations of West Side yeah. Story that I was shocked that Tony and Tony and Maria were the surprises. Mm. And so I am really, one of the big losses is that these two young performers weren't able to be celebrated because I'm sure mm. they would have been during the cycle of awards, because I don't know that that production will come back. And I right. don't know that it will have a recording, which is, right. which is, which is um, again, one of those ways that things get lost along the way in musical theater. Well, I'm glad we were able to speak about it. And I appreciate your sharing your experience of it. And now I'll have to kind of follow those performers careers a little bit more <laughs> than I would have otherwise. We are just about out of time here. And this has been such a pleasure. Is there anything else that you might want to add? I don't know, in terms of what you're experiencing now, or you have other really amazing work on gender crossings um, that we weren't able to kind of delve into today. But um, is there anything else that you might want to just uh, add to the conversation as we get ready to close? 
I'm very much interested to see like what comes next in terms of uh, the next wave. We in 2015 we had three major musicals um, in New York at the same time. Hamilton and On Your Feet were on the same block, and then downtown Cesar Alvarez's um, Futurity was sort of knocking people out. I was like, this is an extraordinary moment that three musicals about the promise of America, all written by Latinx authors, are captivating very different constituencies of musical mm. theater making. We have not seen a similar moment. So what I would ask is. When we see the Latino musical makers, like go see their shows, listen to them, seek them out, check them out, mm -hmm. because there's something, there's a conversation happening that doesn't always get the resources necessary to sort of build beyond these moments, uh, these fleeting moments of attention. So thanks for this opportunity to think deeply, a uh, little bit more deeply than we often do about the presence of Latinos, uh, Latin sounds, Latin styles, Latinos themselves um, in the musical, because um, it's, Whenever I say I'm a specialist in Latinx musical theater, a lot of folks are going like, "Really?" Like, do you? <laughs> so it's, uh, it, but it's a it's a tradition that's there, and it comes in and out of focus, and it takes a variety of shapes, and it confronts our expectations of what we think musicals are. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. to welcome our guest vocal practitioner for this episode, Diane Robinson. Diane Robinson is a voice coach specializing in gender-affirming voice training. Her pronouns are she, hers. Diane's company, Chicago Voice Center, offers individual voice lessons and group classes for people wanting to learn how to modify their speaking voice so they don't get misgendered, which can be a profoundly traumatizing microaggression experienced by gender-diverse people far too frequently. Diane also offers classes for speech-language pathologists, speech-language therapists, and other professional voice trainers and coaches on using theater voice and speech training methods to provide gender-affirming voice care. Diane recently led a two-day workshop with the speech-language pathologists at the Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital in preparation for their development of a protocol for working with gender-affirming voice within the hospital's gender development program. Her online course on theater voice and speech training methods for gender-affirming voice care has enrolled over 150 voice professionals from around the world. Diane leads workshops on breath and empathy with first-year medical students at Rush Medical Center, on voice and movement with the Project Inclusion Fellows at Grant Park Music Center and the Chicago Sinfonietta, and on gender-affirming vocal health for Howard Brown Health Center's After Hours program. Diane has presented internationally on voice and gender. She has an MFA in acting from the University of California, Irvine, and is a certified Fitzmaurice voice work teacher. Diane is a member of Actors' Equity and performed at regional theaters across the country and as a member of the L.A. theater company Theater of Note, where she produced, directed, and performed in over 20 award-winning premieres of new plays. In Chicago, Diane has taught voice and speech for actors at DePaul, Columbia College, Roosevelt, and Northwestern. Thank you so much for joining us, Diane. Thank you for having me, Masi. Yes, I'm so excited that you're here. A colleague of mine recommended you as a, as a wonderful voice teacher and coach, and I'm just so pleased to make the connection. Thank you so much. So um, 
maybe you would like to just say a little bit um, about the work that you do with your company and, and how you came to the idea of starting this company um, and some of the principles and values that drive your work. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I started Chicago Voice Center in 2016 to create opportunities to provide gender affirming voice um, that I wanted to provide and also to bring in other experts and make sure that um, I could create an actual center um, where the trans and non-binary community could find gender-affirming voice services. Mm -hmm. I did that because I was lucky enough to attend a training that's now offered annually by three speech-language pathologists uh, with like a combined expertise of 60 years of working with the trans and non-binary community wow. on voice work. And they began offering a training for clinicians, speech language pathologists, and also other vocal trainers mm -hmm. over a weekend at Roosevelt here in Chicago. Um, and at the time I was uh, working a day job at an LGBT law firm in Chicago and they um, paid my tuition to attend the transgender voice training weekend. And I fell in love with the idea that my skills that I had developed over a career as being an actor and a voice coach and an educator in mm -hmm. acting programs could be used in wellness. And I had never thought of that before. Wow. And so I really felt like I found my calling and I also felt like the, the speech pathology world could really benefit from the theater voice and speech training world. Mm -hmm. And really a, a primary concept from that world that the voice comes from the body. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had a lot to offer and I started sort of offering it in the hallways at the, <laughs> at the webinar. Wow. And I, quickly gathered a crowd of, of speech paths that wanted to know more about how to work with the voice in the body. Uh -huh. um, and so I started doing that um, work with the contacts and the networking that I was able to make out of that one seminar. And then so in the past four or five, it's like four and a half years, I've gone on to train in gender affirming voice at Northwestern. Um, mm -hmm. Northwestern has an amazing center of audiology and speech language training. Yes, school of communication. <laughs> yeah, they are one of the field leaders in gender affirming voice. Amazing. And um, so yeah, so I fell in love with um, the work. And so I got invited to teach with the amazing Liz Jackson at the Voice Lab, which has been doing gender affirming voice and is a singing voice studio. Mm -hmm. um, they were kind enough to let me teach there for a little bit mm -hmm. and begin to meet the community and begin to sort of hone some skills. Um, and so that's what I do. Um, I lead individual voice lessons and I do group workshops. And now this last year, I've begun training voice trainers themselves. And mm -hmm. that's been incredibly gratifying too. 
Amazing. It's, it's clear that you're making a really, a really significant contribution and that there's a real need for this work that you're doing. So, so thank you. I want to ask you a kind of, um, you know, basic level question here, which is what is gender affirming voice? Gender affirming voice is offering ways that gender diverse people can develop their vocal behaviors in a way that affirms their gender identity mm-hmm. and gets them gendered by other people the way they want to be gendered. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. sort of a two-part process. It's a developmental process. It's a way of um, using voice uh, voice work to refine and develop one's sense of one's gender. Mm-hmm. And it also is a way of modifying the voice so mm-hmm. that you get perceived the way you want to get perceived. Mm-hmm. And that can mean different things to every single person. Mm-hmm. It's not... Um, advocating any particular way that people should talk. It's very Mm client-led and gender diverse people get misgendered all the time. Right. And for someone who's cisgender, especially someone like myself, who's cisgender, heterosexual and white, it can be hard to understand what that microaggression feels like. Yeah. Um, My most recent sort of, um, the most recent statement that I heard about it that had a huge impact on me was that it feels like nails on a chalkboard mm-hmm. to be misgendered. And if you can imagine feeling nails on a chalkboard 20 to 30 times a day mm-hmm. for 20 years, yeah. um, we're talking about pain and trauma. Right. Um, so yeah, so gender affirming voice is trying to help that by helping people get perceived the way they want to. This is amazing. Now, I also really appreciate that you are that you say it's client led, and I imagine that everybody has a different uh, sense of how they how they want their voice to to be perceived. And I think I just want to flag that you said that because I feel like it's important as as opposed to thinking that there are these broad um, binaristic categories of your voice will sound this way or your voice will sound that way, and the idea that it can actually sound many, 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 many different ways. And that's something for people to, to find their way through. Am I understanding that correctly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it can also be as binary as heck if mm-hmm. that's what the client wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my job is to facilitate their learning around what that is. Um, mm-hmm. So if a client wants to know what contemporary research indicates are gender markers in the voice, um, along a binary, then I'm happy to either share what I know about that or get them information. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what we do is talk about that and listen to voices, um, mm-hmm. go and listen to voices and talk about what we're hearing and talk about what resonates with the client. Mm-hmm. So there's an educational component to the work as well. Wow. I love that. The part of the work is listening. I mean, obviously it's part of the work for all of us in any kind of performance practice or any kind of vocal practice. 
um, to listen to other people <laughs> expressing <laughs> voice and decide, you know, oh, I want to sound like that. Or like, I want to do, I want to do that thing that that person does, or I never yeah. even thought I could try that. And so that's really in- interesting to me and inspiring to hear that's part of your practice. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, there are a lot of overlaps with theater voice work, um, around mimicry, around developing an accent, around, um, listening mm-hmm. to the way um, a character is revealed or what their relationship of their emotions to their voice is. Mm-hmm. There are these nice, big, beautiful overlaps. So I, I come to this work from a theater background. Right. And the other people that come to this work that are offering gorgeous, specialized, and always improving services mm-hmm. are singing teachers and speech language pathologists, or as they're known in Europe and other countries, speech language therapists. Mm -hmm. So even this field is very interdisciplinary in that it has that overlap between singing voice, theater voice, and voice science. Amazing. And gender studies. Absolutely. Theory, which is huge for Mm -hmm. working with uh, transgender and non-binary population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right now, the biggest um, the biggest moment, which I think is part of a broader global seismic moment, and it's a moment I'm very excited to see, is that the um, the trans and non-binary identifying voice trainers themselves are demanding that they be centered in this work, mm. and that cisgender providers uplift their voices and find a way to step aside while, you know, getting trans and non-binary voice trainers in the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. That makes complete. And yeah. also I think is, um, I mean, it's exciting that there's more attention to this topic such that we can even have these conversations. I mean, absolutely. it's, it's not, that's not to say that they shouldn't have been or couldn't have been had earlier, but um, how exciting, how exciting. Well, I think maybe if it's okay with you, we could turn to the exercise or the tip or the, I think it is an exercise that you plan to share with us. Yeah, definitely. I um, I chose this exercise because I use it all the time in individual lessons and in group settings and with Um, voice providers so that they themselves can find their voice in their body as a way of modeling, finding the voice in your body for their clients. Mm -hmm. And it's a little tweak on a very standard theater physical exercise called the drop down roll up. So I wanted to invite you to do it if you want to. I'd love to. Great. Okay. So I would invite you to stand. Um, And I will just briefly talk you through what a drop-down roll-up is, which involves making sure you have a nice hip-width stance in your feet and you feel them on the ground and letting the weight of your head just drop forward off the end of your spine and then letting the weight of your head and jaw start to slowly roll you down so that you end up in a dropped-over-your-hips position and letting your arms and shoulders and jaw and head and neck be really heavy and loose. You can even jiggle them around a little to make sure they're just hanging there. And in this position, making sure your knees are soft 
and breathing into your lower spine a few times so that you really release into this drop down position on the exhalation. And then to roll up, I'll invite you to think into your tailbone or the lowest part of your spine that you can actually bring your awareness to. And while noticing that you're not holding your breath and while leaving your head and neck and jaw and arms and shoulders heavy, start to roll up into a standing position and do it slowly enough that you can imagine putting each vertebrae on top of each other as you roll up into a standing, easy, aligned position. And just the act of doing that, dropping over, breathing into the small of your back a few times, and then mindfully rolling back up is meant to increase your awareness of your spine which means actually feel your spine and recognize that it's there. And also gives you a really nice opportunity to notice, am I holding my breath? And can I not do that? Um, and also once you're dropped over to breathe into your lower back a few times, which opens the body to the breath. So that is a pretty standard theater exercise as a warm up or an awareness of spine builder. And what I'm going to invite you to do is add a hum to this movement. And the way that I'll instruct you through that is to begin a hum while you're standing there and then just close your lips around that hum and roll down with that hum until you're dropped over and then just let the hum out of your mouth just fall onto the floor out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. And then take a breath at the bottom, start the hum again trap your lips around that hum and roll back up your spine. And when your head is floated back up into alignment at the top, just let your lips part and let the hum drop out of you. So that's a billion instructions, okay. but uh, I wondered if you wanted to try that a couple times. I do. Any, any pitch at all for the hum? A any pitch at all to begin. Okay. okay. Great. So from the sound of it, it sounds because it sounded like two hums, you hummed down and you hummed up. Is that right? Well, I only hummed down, but maybe it was just because of the audio. I'm going to I'm going to hum back up now real quick, if that's OK. Great. Hum <laughs> on up. Hum on up. Great, that was a beautiful hum up. So my offering on this and why I use it with my clients is that we have a, we have a big concept of imagining or understanding pitch as having levels of high and low. And I want to invite you to do this drop down, roll up with a hum two ways. The first way aligned with that concept where you start the pitch at a higher pitch and as you drop down, you swoop down into a lower pitch. And then as you, after you take a breath at the bottom, 
you start the hum again on a low pitch and roll up into an aligned position and back into a high pitch. So why don't you go ahead and try that from high to low and then low to high on All a right. drop down roll up hum. Okay. Great. And then the tweak is to just switch it um, and sort of play with you, the way that your body and your brain has internalized this notion of pitch as high and low and begin the hum on a low note and roll down the body into a high note and then take a breath at the bottom, begin the hum on a high note and roll on up into an open low note. I'm so excited to do this. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Beautifully demonstrated, yes. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Oh, I'm so glad, yeah. I feel like it's doing different things to my brain. I feel like it's making my brain work in different ways than it usually yeah, does. It, it's kind of like the corpus callosum tester of the brain, absolutely. Wow. And what's so interesting to me is that all of a sudden I have some really different associations. Like with the high, high stuff, I, I'm... I associated that with like a kind of cramping, <laughs> kind of like being folded over almost too much, which yeah, is really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. And then I kind of really loved being able to find the gravelly stuff when I was standing all the way up and not feel like that was a throwaway sound. <laughs> so anyway, those were some of my impressions. Yeah, nice. I wanted to ask, I usually just ask everybody, you know, um, if there's anything that you've been noticing about your own voice, about the voices around you that feel specific to this time, just the ways that uh, I'm using my voice on a daily basis now um, are not the way that they were a year ago. Um, and so I'm trying to be aware of that and open to noticing that and asking other people what they may be noticing in their own teaching or practice. I think um, 2020 for me has been a journey of um, destroying the limits that we thought Zoom had. Um, you know, thinking about framing and what a Zoom thing should be and just using it any way we can to get the work done. Mm -hmm. So making sure that I am up walking around while teaching, mm -hmm. that I encourage my clients to be moving that I don't care if I see them or not, unless I really specifically need to for something, mm -hmm. that they might not have to see me, that we don't have to make it a, a Zoom show, that mm -hmm. we can hear each other and we can see each other. And 
So I think it's been really liberating that way. It started out like, how do I teach on Zoom? And now it's like, well, how do I just, how do I teach? Yeah. Um, I started an online course, a group course on Zoom for the first time this year. And I was amazed at how well it worked. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great to find out. And then the other very specific thing that I've learned, um, some anecdotes in working with gender affirming voice are, that having, especially people that work in higher education or training, people that moved from live educational scenarios, mm -hmm. um, especially people that were beginning a transition or in the middle of transitioning, it really screwed with their timelines. Oh, um, yeah. People that were transitioning suddenly had to be seen and heard in a media that they might not have been ready for. Yeah. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with people this year helping them with creating online content and mm -hmm. helping them through the dysphoria that came up from having to see themselves and listen to themselves all day long while they were building their content. Oh, wow. Um, so really fascinating um, impact of moving to digital education mm -hmm. on people that might not have wanted to for very specific reasons. Wow, that makes so much sense. And um, I'm just grateful for, for the work that you're doing and for you for saying that. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to become caught up in one's own particular dramas <laughs> with the pandemic <laughs> and everybody has and they're all valid, you know, not to say that different people's struggles aren't valid, but um, it's also an important exercise um, for people like myself and an exercise in empathy and, and, and in listening differently and being aware differently of our colleagues and our, and our friends and our loved ones and our, our fellow performers and artists around us and teachers. Um, and to think about what, uh, we're all, what we're all experiencing and also what I'm expecting my students to go through. Right. So oh. what you, what you've just said really, I think will help me in thinking about, uh, course design. I mean, suddenly we're all expected to be performers in a medium that we weren't. Right. Uh, and the awkwardnesses and the, and the pressures of that, um, you know, they're really good grist for the mill. They're really great opportunities to breathe and make mistakes mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, be human. Yes. No, I thank you. This is great. I really, I really am so grateful for for you spending this time. Uh, I'm. It's my first time connecting with you, and I'm so. I feel your your spirit <laughs> so clearly through this Zoom call. I, we can't see each other, but um, it's been such a pleasure. I can tell what a gift you are to your students, and um, and I especially, it's especially meaningful to have this conversation with you today on November twentieth. Um, transgender Day of Remembrance, when we remember all of the transgender people who have been lost due to violence. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, the um, this year was the uh, an epidemic of violence against transgender people, and largely um, uh, Black and Latina transgender women. Um, many people have been murdered, and that does something to everybody's voice. Um, so right. I just want to um, express my gratitude for being uh, of some service to this community and their resilience is dazzling. Um, 
lifting the boat for everybody about what it is to be human and I'm grateful to brush up against them. Oh, you bring me to tears, Diane. Thank you so much for joining Thank me you. today. Thank you, Master. Thanks for listening. I can't promise just when the next episode may come, but it's been a pleasure sharing this first season of Voicing Across Distance with you. I hope you stay safe and hopeful this summer, take good care, and use your voice in meaningful ways. Until next time.